With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 77th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, PadToppin, or, well, whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my now 117,000 plus listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you all and I really love getting all of your messages, so keep them coming. My July Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 29th. Please sign up for them. They're provided for free since 2007. I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email address in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So today is the next in my series of shows on voting and elections security. And in particular, we're focusing on a very hot and often contentious topic. If you watch some of those discussions on TV or online, we're talking about voting by mail. Now, if you've listened to my other voting and elections security and privacy shows in this series, you'll know that I've been voting in every election and caucus and primary since I was old enough to vote. And because of my business travel and a few health issues along the way, elections have often occurred while I was away from home. So, I've voted absentee by mail here in Iowa, probably around 60% of my voting life. And I know, because I did my research and my testing, I know that the mail-in voting procedures here in Iowa have been solid to date anyway. They prevent a person from voting more than once, and each Voter by mail can go to the Secretary of State's website and see exactly when the Secretary of State office mailed the ballot to the voter and when the Secretary of State office received the completed ballot by mail in their office. And then it also shows that that voter is now marked as having voted. So they would no longer be able to vote again 
at the in-person polling stations. And, you know, with a highly contagious, deadly, and often long-lasting and debilitating impact of being infected on those that survive uh, a pandemic such as we're going through now with the coronavirus, you know, it, it just seems like it should be common sense for everyone to be able to vote by mail if, if they choose to do so. I mean, it's a public safety issue. Certainly, too, it helps to ensure everyone, ensuring those most susceptible can exercise their constitutional right to vote in a safe way without putting their health at risk. And I've been really surprised by some of the people, especially in the information security industry of all places, who do information security risk assessments quite often. I've been surprised to see some of them oppose a voting method that I've seen to be actually much less risky in many ways than some of the other methods based upon the voting machines and the ages and vulnerabilities and so on. And of course, I'm sure all of you have, uh, if you're watching the news at all, you've seen a very wide range of conspiracy theories being promoted by many lawmakers and politicians and others in different groups. And, you know, let's, let's actually listen to and hear what a voting expert thinks, right? I think that's important. So today I'm speaking with Amber McReynolds, one of the country's leading experts on election administration and policy. And Amber is also co-author of the book, When Women Vote. I recently saw Amber McReynolds on C-SPAN, and I saw her speaking about efforts to expand vote-by-mail and absentee balloting for the November general election amid concerns over coronavirus. And while I was watching, I thought, wow, you know, more people need to hear what Ms. McReynolds has to say. I want to have her on my show. And uh, I also purchased her book, which I am looking at sitting here right next to me. I look forward to reading it. Amber is the CEO for the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition and is the former director of elections for Denver, Colorado. You can check out her site, voteathome.org. Amber transformed the elections division in Colorado into a national and international award-winning office. Ms. McReynolds has proven that designing pro-voter policies and voter-centric processes and implementing technical innovations truly will improve representation for all voters. Amber serves on many elections and voting task forces. See more about Amber McReynolds in her bio posted with this show at my Voice America page. Amber, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Oh, well, I'm so happy you were able to make it because I know you must be very highly in demand right now. So when I I heard that uh, you were able to speak with me, I posted a note to my Facebook page and I asked uh, what types of voting by mail security and uh, fraud types of questions folks would ask you as a voting expert if they had the chance. And, you know, I've done this before for other topics and shows that I've covered. But this time, I got more suggested questions than for any other show. I mean, they posted them as comments to my timeline and through direct messaging, and I got over 50 questions. And they were all basically a little bit different at their core. I mean, most people who vote are truly concerned about this issue, and they really want to know more. So I thought it would be helpful if we would start with just a brief history of voting by, by mail. So when did voting by mail start in the U.S., and were there security or fraud problems back then? Well, it's such a great question, and I get I get asked this quite a bit. Um, absentee voting started in the Civil War with military voters that were away from home. And military voters have actually been the the largest voting block of users of vote-by-mail and absentee voting for, you know, the longest period of time. And then it continued to grow. And with the dynamics um, overseas for military voters changing over time, all of that, those different different things have happened at the federal level to expand options for military and overseas voters, including the UACABA, which is the Uniformed and Overseas Voting uh, Act, and then UMUVO, which is another act that was uh, passed by Congress to expand options for those voters. Uh, so that's been the, the, the biggest use. And then um, Oregon was the first state back in the 90s to, to sort of go to a full vote-by-mail, mailing ballots to every voter prior to each election type of model, and then Washington followed closely. And then, you know, a few years after that, Colorado ultimately adopted a modified version of of that, what Oregon started with. And really what we've seen is a um, continuous improvement of the Mm vote-by-mail program, the model itself, uh, to where it's really been well-developed in certain states where I, I kind of like to say that it's always best not to reinvent the wheel, but replicate what's been done well. And now there's a lot of great examples in the western side of the country where this has been adapted and modeled over time. Yes. You know, I bet a lot of people are surprised to hear that about the Civil War. I mean, you'd think after, you know, over 200 years now, we've been voting by mail. And like you said, I mean, back in the mid-1990s with Oregon and Washington, I mean, obviously, they're like, they've had a long time to really refine uh, the process. Now, some of the concerns that... uh, some of my Facebook contacts had was they were worried about mail-in ballots um, sent to registered voters. And they were trying to, they were just very concerned about how um, the, the election centers would know that those requests for those mail-in ballots were from the actual voter, or if, if some other you know group or other people were trying to get other people's 
ballots and turn them in. So what kind of controls are there to prevent that from happening with mail-in voting? Right. Well, in the states um, that you, you know, that are that you don't have to file a request for, like Colorado, Washington, Oregon, now California, Utah, Hawaii, those states you're not actually requesting anything, right? The ballot is coming to your registration address. If there's a change to your registration record in all of those states, it has to be made by the voter, so it has to be voter-initiated, whether that be through the Motor Vehicle Office, through the online registration system, which you have to have your credentials and your personal identifying information to access uh, through a form or through one of the other uh, sort of government platforms. Uh, some, of the, some of the states I mentioned have automatic registration. So that sort of integration of data and how address changes and all of that happen across government systems is, is really um, important in terms of voters getting their ballots at the right address. Uh, so, so we sort of eliminated that, frankly, risk with someone, you know, submitting a request because the requests don't happen in those states, right? It's all driven by what is on file for your voter registration. And we've also, in those states, spent a lot of time improving that process because we rely on being able to deliver a ballot to the correct address. And so those states also, Colorado being, being actually the highest, Colorado has the highest voter registration rate of any state in the country because in addition to mailing ballots to voters, we also adopted automatic and same-day registration. So we modernized our registration process, and that has really improved our list. So we constantly interact with voters. We check in to see if they've moved or updated addresses. We automatically update addresses using government systems. And so all of that has improved the the list. We have the most accurate voter files in the country now comparatively to other states. And so those are the sorts of approaches that you take when you want to improve that, the quality of that and making sure that voters actually receive the ballots that they get. And then in the states where you have to request it, you do have to file a form or you have to file a request online or via email, and states vary on this, but that information then is compared and you do have to provide uh, some specific information to you as a voter uh, to get that ballot. And then on the back end, of course, signature verification also happens in addition to some in-between steps for us to know that the voter actually voted the ballot, turned it in. And if there's any question on that, there's a there's an outreach process that happens to make sure the voter is who they said they are. Mm, great. Well, so talking about those kind of states, I live in Iowa, so we don't all mail, uh, do mail-in voting. Um, we have the polls, and then here you don't have to have a reason to request an absentee v- ballot. And so earlier this year, uh, well, very just a few weeks ago, actually, our Secretary of State, Paul Pate, um, and I'll say he's a Republican, just because I know a lot of people listening are probably wondering that. But anyway, in March or April of this year, he actually sent applications, not the ballots, but the applications for the mail-in ballots to all registered voters in Iowa. And he stated in a published uh, announcement, 
and TV ads and everything else that he believed this would be the safest way to allow for everyone to vote with the risk of voting in polling locations during a pandemic. Really, what what was fascinating and amazing, more than 520,000 confirmed unique voter ballots here in Iowa were then cast uh, by mail in June, and this is according to Secretary Pate's office, and that that beat the previous record of 450,000 that was set way back in 1994. So, and this was a primary, and there were no identified record of um, fraud or security problems. However, after that success, why our Iowa State Senate Republicans passed a bill along a party line vote and they prohibited the state secretary of state from proactively sending applications for mail-in ballots to all registered voters again. And I just thought that was so strange. And per their bill, anyone who wants a mail-in ballot would now need to submit a written request on their own in addition to showing proof of valid voter identification. And on June 25th, why our Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds um, signed the bill into law, but it was amended to now additionally require the Iowa Secretary of State to obtain approval from the state legislature to once more send absentee ballot requests to every registered voter in the state Uh, Even though it was a great success and it it just verifiably increased voter turnout and no fraud was committed during a year when there's a a pandemic (laughs) that's still going on. What are your thoughts about this new Iowa law? I mean, are there similar actions going on in other states that it, it just seems like it's going backwards instead of forwards? Yeah, I mean, here's here's the um the, the truth on uh, election officials. First off, it's the responsibility of the secretaries of state, the chief election officials, if, that, if that's their title, or the state boards of elections, or local election officials that are the chief election officials in their jurisdiction. It is the responsibility of every single one of them in this country, and there's more than 7,000, to communicate options about voting to voters and how to register, how to vote, how to vote early, how to vote by mail, how to vote on Election Day. It is their duty and responsibility to do that. So the fact that the Iowa legislature, and we've also seen this attempted in a few other states, Georgia actually killed an amendment like that. Um, but the fact that Iowa did that, I think, is is incredibly hurtful, not only to voters, but also incredibly um, uh, uh problematic for election officials to do their job because essentially the Mm -hmm. legislature is saying we don't want you to do what you're constitutionally obligated to do under the duties that are assigned to you and that is is highly problematic destructive and frankly insulting to the voting population within Mm -hmm. states that have taken those sorts of actions to either reduce an election official's ability to share information or tie one hand behind their back with poor policy design. And we see it kind of continuously happen, and it doesn't make sense because all these elected officials that sort of go down this path, 
are there and they've been chosen by the electorate. And they should be representing the citizens that they represent, the ones that chose them, but also the ones that didn't vote for them. It's their responsibility mm-hmm. to do that. And that's unfortunate. I think it's um, destructive what Iowa did, and, and I hope that they actually reverse it <laughs> to, to give mm-hmm. Secretary Pate the ability to communicate the way that he did before the primary. Yes. Well, I sure hope they do, too, because I was just so happy to see that he did that. Now, some of the um, state lawmakers, you know, of course, they came back and they were giving all these reasons why. Um, And one of them kind of kept hitting upon this um, fear that uh, the ballots would be taken from people's mailboxes if uh, everybody was mailed you know, ballots to complete and that somebody else would be, you know, lurking around the neighborhoods, collecting everyone's ballots and then filling them out themselves and turning them in. So how would you respond to that claim? I mean, aren't there ways to keep that from happening? Yeah. So first off, it's a, it's a federal crime to mess with somebody else's mail. So, you know, anyone who attempts to do that, if they're caught and all those sorts of things, there's, there's penalties against that, right? And there's a process that the post office, you know, has in place for the delivery of mail for a reason. And so I think I think the the misinformation or disinformation around that or encouraging of that is a problem for a variety of reasons. But you know, I just want to remind everyone that's listening, and and I hope others remind you know other people that bring this up. It is a it is a crime to mess with someone's mail. Um, so that's kind of first and foremost. That's separate from election-related crimes and interference with election officials or interference or intimidation of voters. There's also penalties for that in the laws around the country. So there's significant issues with that premise in and of itself. Um, yeah. The second piece is we also now, and, and we actually, in, when I was in Denver, way back in 2009 now, 11 years ago, created the first-ever ballot tracking solution that enables not only election officials to track uh, the, the movement of mail ballots through the postal system and then all the way back again, but also gives voters visibility into all that information. So it's, it's a lot like tracking a package or even when you see when you order an Uber or Lyft or Uber Eats or any of those things, when you can track the movement on an app, you can essentially do this with this type of system for mail ballots because it utilizes the intelligent mail barcode that's provided by the post office, you get information and tracking data as to where it is. And so you, in a lot, if you're on that type of system, you know, we created that back in Denver now, and now there's other states that have, that have adopted it. When you have that sort of visibility and accountability, you also know when your ballot's on, on the way to you. So if it doesn't arrive, you're, you immediately know that there's an issue. Um, and it can be tracked down because we have that data now. So I think the other thing that, that sort of bad actors that want to try to interfere with this process or attempt to or talk about these things, they fail to recognize that there's actually been a lot of systems now developed and technology that's come online that helps with these exact issues. Uh, so hopefully that gives kind of a, a, a direct <laughs> overview of how, number one, how it would be difficult, number two, the penalties associated with it, but number three, the ways that we can also detect and deter those sorts of interference or bad actors that try to do that. Yeah, I mean, even if the physical act of mailing in a ballot is not digitized, um, like you said, there's tracking that's going on. Plus, 
um, at the beginning, you know, I talked about how I can go onto the site and I can actually see the date that they mailed it to me, the date that they received it, the fact that they counted it. Um, I love that. It doesn't go into the same, you know, details as what you were talking about, showing where it's at, but at least I know. And they actually have um, a way for you to call them and say, hey, I didn't actually vote. So can you throw that out so I can actually send in my own, you know, valid um, vote? So I really appreciate that with regard to what our Secretary of State has set up over um, the years. And, and then plus, can you imagine with all the Nest and Ring videos that are in place, how you could probably catch <laughs> people sneaking around, taking everybody's ballots um, from their mailboxes? Yeah, and I want to be very clear here, right, too. There's a lot of check. There's actually more check in the mail ballot process than there is for in-person voting. And the reason I say that is, you know, the first step is we need to know where you are to send you a ballot. So your address and your information on file has to be accurate and up-to-date. That's really important for that step to occur. There's not address validation or checks like that for in-person voting, right, in the same mm-hmm. way. So that's kind of the first step. And then and then that's a, that's a blank ballot that's going out to you. Once you vote it, there's a process to return it that includes your signature and that validation of your signature. And so... The other thing that we have also found in a lot of the mail ballot states, and there's a reason that, for instance, in Colorado, Oregon, Washington, now Utah, California, they've also expanded the number of secure drop boxes, meaning very large boxes bolted into the ground, designed for ballots, so it's not like a postal box where you can pull down the lever and put a bunch of things in there. You can put one at a time that are camera, that have extra security around them, that are monitored. Those sorts of drop-off locations are, have also become extremely popular to, to the tune of about 70% of voters choosing to drop off their ballot in person hmm. in a state like Colorado. And that actually gives voters that extra confidence because what we've also found is voters love mail ballots. They love the ballot coming to them. But a lot of voters really like that in-person drop-off option because they're either mm-hmm. turning it in on Election Day or they like the idea of putting it directly in the the official ballot box for, for the election mm-hmm. official, as opposed to mailing it back. So anyone also that has concerns about mailing their ballot to the post office has that option in those states. That is fabulous. Now, I have so much more to talk about, but right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with voting security expert Amber McReynolds, CEO for the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition, and also co-author of the new book, When Women Vote, which covers voting security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. (music) 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with voting security expert Amber McReynolds, CEO for the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition, and also co-author of the new book, When Women Vote. So we were talking about, you know, the controls that were in place um, when mailing in your ballot uh, from the mailbox and so on. Now, Amber, I had one of my Facebook friends had a concern about, um, you know, voter suppression methods or voter um, intimidation. And he was wondering, you know, how do you ensure or can you ensure that ballots are free from undue influence or threats. So the example he gave me was um, if there are people in a, in the home or maybe in an apartment building that are fo- forcing others in the home to vote the way they demand and not the way the voter actually wants to vote, or maybe somebody at that address just fills out everybody's ballots for them and sends them in. Um, what kind of of controls are there? Or is, is there any way to prevent that kind of intimidation? So, yeah, it's a, it's a good question and one that comes up quite a bit. Um, we, uh, there's a couple different ways that that can work. And first off, you know, states vary in this way, but we want to make sure that state laws and policies that are in place and on the books prevent and, and certainly deter with, uh, uh, laws against intimidation and make sure that that's accurately, you know, on the books and that there's penalties for that. So that's one of the protections is making sure that state laws have those um, those pieces very clearly articulated so that voters um, and any bad actors are held accountable if something comes up. And then also election offices, it's really important for them to provide instructions to voters, whether it be within ballot packets or any of that about the fact that their their vote is private 
Uh, and if they do, uh, if they do feel intimidated or they have any of those things happen to them, that there's a way for them to report that right away. Uh, the other aspect is, and this is something that uh, Colorado certainly has, you know, we, we designed this as part of our model, but also other states have adopted, and that is when you, when you turn your ballot in, for instance, and I get this question a lot, but if someone feels intimidated in their home by somebody else and they perhaps send the ballot off, if that person then calls the election office the next morning or even goes in in person and reports that and says, you know, I felt intimidated, I would like to get an, an alternate ballot. They mm-hmm. actually can uh, grab, you know, they can basically cancel that initial ballot request, which will happen mm-hmm. real time, allow them to vote in person or issue them a new ballot in in person and, and, allow, and, and allow that to happen. If the ballot's already been received and processed, that makes it a lot more difficult. But as long as they, they report that immediately, that can actually be captured and, and canceled um, mm-hmm. in the process. And so that's one of the other things that we also communicate with folks about. Uh, and and we, I don't recall ever that actually getting reported like that. But we also mm-hmm. made sure we communicated that and made sure voters were very clear that they needed to report intimidation or bad actors. And, you know, a lot of these processes, just like many laws on our books, it does require somebody to report the crime, right? So mm-hmm. that's why all of those laws and the way that they're written, it's really important that that, that happen and then also that voters understand what their options are. Right, right. Well, I would think, you know, you said that there's over 7,000 uh, elections officials. So it sounds like they're probably bear some responsibility for communicating out to uh, the folks who, the voters, how to get in touch with them about that, right? I mean, is that pretty much in all states that that's their obligation? Yeah, it is. And it's and it's similar to what we talked about in the beginning with Secretary mm-hmm. Pate being responsible for communicating information about how to vote, how to register, all those things. That's mm-hmm. the chief election officials in a state or the local election officials' responsibility to make sure that they educate and communicate and, and share information about that and make sure that voters are protected. And that's what mm-hmm. we, we always should be focused on is ensuring that voters are protected from misinformation, disinformation, bad actors, bad information that might be targeting them in a bad way. I mean, we've had... You know, we, we, the topic lately has been a lot of mail ballots, but there's actually a lot of intimidation that happens with in-person voting, whether it be electioneering outside of the polling location, uh, interference with voters going into a polling location, mm. um, the, the signs on, or, you know, leaflets that get dropped off at people's homes that tell them that their polling place moved when it really didn't. All of those things have happened over time. Bad information on Facebook, uh, bad information... Mm-hmm. Um, from bad actors that are deliberately trying to interfere with the process. And we have to make sure that we have uh, a reporting mechanism and then also that those bad actors are held accountable when they do that. Um, And that's why reporting things like misinformation about an election on Twitter, regardless of who's doing it, making sure that those things get reported if it's happening to different social media platforms is also part of the reporting of this sorts of information and, and issues that happen. Well, and, you know, that's something that's not even a problem with mail-in voting either, right? I mean, that's a problem with all types of voting. So when when people try to point, you know, use those arguments 
that says, well, mail-in voting isn't, isn't secure or safe because of those reasons. Well, those reasons also apply to every other method of voting, it seems to me. Absolutely. It's, it's to the entire process. And, you know, there, uh-huh. there are very strict penalties for trying to interfere with either election officials or voters in that process. And intimidation, we have seen it happen repeatedly for decades and uh, even over throughout our history. You know, women uh-huh. were um, intimidated when they first started being able to vote and separated into certain lines and their ballots had to go into certain boxes. Like that has been systematic in a lot of ways, right? Uh-huh. And so... We have to make sure that voters uh, are protected, have the opportunity to exercise their their right to vote um, in a very uh, safe way and secure way, um, and and it and that applies to all forms of voting and the methods of voting. And you know, we have to be we have to be very cognizant of certainly misinformation that's that's intended to confuse or or intimidate or any of those things in the election process. Well, talking about um, misinformation and and fear mongering, I think, here's a question I got from several people. And it's based upon what they're seeing, you know, in reports from various outlets and social media. But this this concept of ballot stuffing. So there's a fear uh, that uh, people have that, oh, well, with mail-in voting, you know, what's going to prevent what they're saying is massive state-sponsored or nation-state-sponsored or some particular group that wants to just send in a bunch of ballots to be votes and, you know, what's going to prevent that from happening because there, there's these um, rumors or uh, conspiracy theories that all of these ballots are going to be sent in for people and counted. Um, so, so how do you counter that claim when people make it? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, with all of this and like the misinformation and all that, I always encourage people to go directly to their Secretary of State's website or their local election official's website for their information. So, you know, mm-hmm. the the talking heads and the partisan politics and all that kind of stuff, you know, to me is, as long as people are sharing good information, that's great. But a lot of times it's, it's not, right? So I always say mm-hmm. go to the source, go to the trusted info that is there for every single voter that's clear, that's concise, all of that. And go to trusted mm-hmm. sources for good information, too. You know, there's a lot of nonprofits that are nonpartisan, like like the one that I run, the National Vote at Home Institute. And, and there's a lot of really great people that are trying to do really good work in this space and make sure that there's good information out there. And, you know, going to some of those really good trusted sources is also really important because, um, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of good information on best practices, information about each state and what their policies are. So a lot of times to get, you know, kind of the broader national scale, you have to go to one of one of our nonprofits that um, that, that put out a lot of this information. Um, so mm-hmm. I think those are those are good tactics. And then and then also, um, you know, another good uh, 
sort of way to approach this is also to talk to neighbors and friends and your circle of influence or your sphere of your orbit of people, right? Because mm-hmm. I also find, especially with the work I do, the number of text messages, phone calls, Facebook posts, um, emails I get when elections are happening or when there's news about elections from my circle of, of, of friends is pretty incredible. So I mm-hmm. also, you know, use your platforms to make sure you're, um, getting the best information possible and getting educated. And there's a lot of information videos and, 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 you know, news articles that reference researchers and people that are truly experts. Um, and that's really important too, because, you know, I don't just run a voting nonprofit. I ran elections for 13 years and I've also always been unaffiliated. So I've never been a partisan person tied to the parties. Like I just am a technocrat that communicates information about the voting process and how to improve it. Um, and, you know, paying close attention to folks like that that are have actually run elections, not just campaigns, mm-hmm. not just researched elections, not just observed elections, but really run elections, which are usually the local officials in in the states because they, they have the best information that's real-time, that's on the ground, that's trusted, and that's how we have to you know, kind of break through the noise on misinformation is, is going to those reliable sources. Yes. Well, my goodness, over 13 years, you've probably seen about everything that you could possibly see and also had 13 years of seeing how to make improvements too. Um, one of the questions I got, this this is a really good question. It kind of flips to a different part of the life cycle of that voting ballot when it's received. So one of my Facebook friends said he's concerned about voting security on the back end. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people visualize that um, in the election center, if you have mail-in voting, that all these big bags of um, ballots are coming in, you know, right? Kind of like Santa Claus getting his letters at Christmas. All of a sudden, you're getting all of these big ballot bags of ballots. And a lot of people are thinking, you know, these ballots are coming in and that Every ballot, uh, blank ballot, looks the same. So some of the questions that some people have are like, when you have these big bags of ballots arrive, how do you know which ballot was cast first when you find two, two or more ballots that have the same name on them? I mean, what happens in that situation? Well, first, so we sort of have to go back a second. And it's a great question, and I always appreciate the security questions because, frankly, it's our democracy, and we have to make sure it's secure. And there's all kinds of versions of that. There's the, you know, security around the election process itself. There's physical security of polling locations as well as voting locations. Uh, A couple years ago, we actually ended up starting to train our election judges on active shooter scenarios, which is really unfortunate. Mm. That's where we have to go. But those are the sorts of, frankly, physical security aspects of this that don't get talked about a lot, but are are a huge thing. Uh, On the mail ballots themselves, when the ballots go out, they are specific to the voter. So there's specific information on the outgoing envelope as well as the return envelope that is specific to you as the voter. Your voter ID, usually in a barcode, your name, your address, and then that signature uh, in terms of the affidavit of voter that you're that you voted your ballot in a in a uh, private way. Usually, there's language around that, and then it's you and you're eligible to vote. You have to sign off on all those things. And again, 
perjury or committing of that so all of those things are punishable under law if that ballot for instance is not yours all of those things can uh that, that they are they are crimes in every state so mm-hmm. first off that envelope comes specific to you and then when you return it it's not like there's just your name on the outside of a ballot there's barcode information about you that we then use to look you up and your signature is compared your information on the outside of the envelope is compared to what's on on the uh, ballot uh, on the screen and then if there's a signature match then and only if then your ballot continues in to be processed the other specific thing is ballots can't just be printed so you know you've probably seen in some of the national news or maybe tweets that there's this like idea that ballots can just be printed by overseas bad actors and mm-hmm. sent into election offices. That's not how it works. In this country, ballots are either printed and mailed by third-party vendors that go through a certification process, or they're printed and mailed in election officials' offices. So by bipartisan election judge teams, by the election officials themselves, and then they are mailed out. So they're not you can't just print ballots and reproduce all of this overseas because it's a very specific, longer process that has multiple steps. Um, mm-hmm. And if that was attempted, there would actually be ways to detect that, including what I'm about to describe. So the ballots are also printed in a way that has to comply with what can actually be tabulated and scanned by the voting system equipment. Oftentimes that means it's a heavier, it's a specific weight. It has specific timing marks around it that is not put out into the general public sphere. So when you see a sample ballot, it doesn't have the same timing marks around Mm. the ballot that tells the system it can count it. And there's also pre-election testing of all that to make sure the system reads those codes. And and what it's reading on there is that it's the the correct precinct style um, and therefore looking for ovals and the markings on the ballot uh, based on what the voter chose. And then the other aspect of it, so after all of that kind of happens, and again, we're only counting ballots that have gone through the verification process and are accepted signatures, so if there's any issue with the signature, the voter's going to be notified, and then there's going to have to be a cure process before that ballot can actually be counted. And then in the counting room, once you, in the, and again, this is all paper ballots being counted, so in a lot mm-hmm. of states, Colorado being one, but states have post-election processes where they randomly audit the, and account for the ballot um, process. So we randomly check those ballots, and we'd be able to detect any uh, sort of interference with that process uh, that happens on the back end. If it hasn't been caught before that, which it likely would, because the scanner would essentially be able to, and it does this already, but some people will put in a, um, they'll return like a primary ballot in the general election, like they'll mm-hmm. accidentally do that. The system will, the the scanner itself will flag that because it'll say, wait, this is from a previous election. There's an issue with this. We can't read the code Mm. like it should be. So there's kind of all these specific processes that happen. And I think that it's easy for people that don't understand that process or are non-experts to send out a tweet or send out a crazy idea. And then people think, oh, my goodness, that could happen because there's a lack of understanding of that very big specific process that happens. Mm-hmm. around all of this. Well, you know, another thing related to that, and you, you mentioned it a few times, and this was a big concern uh, by several people I had. It had to do with the signatures and matching the signatures on the ballot. So some people were like, well, you know, who 
how are those signatures checked? And then some other people were saying that they were concerned because they came from a location where a lot of people who did vote by mail were told that their uh, vote was invalid because their signature wasn't any good. But he said that he, you know, that they were. So how, I mean, how do you deal with the, the voter signature um, checks? Is that done by humans? Is it done by machines? Uh, does it vary by state? Yeah. It, it does vary by state and it varies by jurisdiction sometimes, but the best practices around this, and this is really important, and again, this is one of those um, uh, processes that have been perfected, continuously improved upon all of that over time in a lot of these states that have done this extensively. States that haven't done a lot of this, what we've been advising is don't reinvent the wheel, just replicate what's worked really well in some of these other states. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of ways it can be done. A lot of the larger jurisdictions in the country, including Miami, uh, Seattle, Orange County, California, all the large jurisdictions in Colorado, a lot of them in California and elsewhere, use what's called a ballot sorting uh, machine that also has a built-in signature verification software. So it'll actually do a one-to-one match. And the software is great because it doesn't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, unaffiliated, or what your age is or any of those things. It's just purely looking at a a one-to-one match within a percentage of, um, uh, within a percentage uh, sort of um, scale. And mm-hmm. that, again, is set by the jurisdiction or the, the state official based on best practices around verifying signatures from law enforcement. So you basically mm. set a, a percentage that can be matched, and if the software can make the match, then the, then the signature moves on, and then there's an auditing process for that for how that happens. The software can't make a match, which depends on the state and jurisdiction, but we'll just say 50% maybe get, you know, can't be perfectly matched. Then two election judges. So the best practice and what we recommend is two election judges, Republican and Democrat, or three if you had non-affiliated or any of that, as long as they're different, will then review that signature on screen. And if they also believe, uh, or if they can't make a match, then it goes, and this is, again, if it's going to be rejected, it goes to a another research team that will go in, look at all the documents on file, and again, we may have 30 different signatures for a one voter from different documents they filled out, motor vehicle transactions, uh, previous mail ballots, any of those things. They, they look at all of that research. They also see if there's any notes in the voter's file. For instance, someone may send us a letter and say, you know what, I broke my hand. Now I'm writing with my left hand, and they let us know that, right? So mm. there's also notes and, and different information that can be captured. Uh, that research team then decides, and they have to agree. So in Colorado, those that decision has to be agreed upon, and if they both agree that it is a rejection, they will reach out to the voter and give them till eight days after the election to resolve that discrepancy. And that requires a copy of ID and an affidavit to be filled out. Uh, and you can do it electronically or through the mail with a prepaid postage envelope. So that's kind of the Colorado process. A lot of states have something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's uh, sort of not using that equipment. And what that would mean is it's still that tiered signature verification approach where you have uh, an initial review, 
if, if it needs to be further researched, you go to that next step and you do that, and then you give uh, a, a time period to cure to anybody who doesn't match. Um, and then also we've been recommending, too, that states adopt consistency with standards on how they're validating. So Colorado mm-hmm. and Oregon and Washington, some of these states have, have developed very specific guidance for their counties to follow so that it's consistent. And that's also really important because you want to have that consistency across the state. And if if there's higher rejection rates in certain counties than others, that means there's not consistency. And we should look at that and figure out why that Mm -hmm. is and remedy that. Well, yes. And, you know, as you were describing that, it sounds like the states that have been doing mail-in voting for quite a while – you, Colorado, it sounds like you've got that process down great. What is the rate of voting fraud or security in states that have only been doing mail-in voting for the last several years? Is that something something that um, that you've determined or that that is available? Sure. So uh, the way that it works and. Um, and actually, I ran elections in the previous model. So I ran polling place elections with early voting, oh. with absentee voting, then vote centers, then the mail-in voting piece. So I've transitioned all these systems. And I actually mm-hmm. will tell you that we referred more issues to the district attorney for investigation from our polling place model uh, in in-person voting than we did now in the current and new system. And the reason for that is we looked at all the ways we could improve the election process, including data integrity and voter registration updates and all those things that create issues at polling places um, and that are also very important for mail ballots. So because we did a comprehensive um, change and reform back seven years ago, we have improved our system and we've enhanced security overall. Um, and with mail ballot voting, no. I mean, the way that it works is if there's a signature discrepancy and the voter does not resolve that discrepancy, that means the system caught an issue. So mm-hmm. we then refer that over to the district attorney, give them as much information as we can, and then they follow up and review and determine if they're going to press any charges. It's very rare that charges are pressed, frankly, because the vote wasn't counted. Right. Mm. So Mm -hmm. the system caught it. Right. So the likelihood that the DA proceeds with charges when the vote wasn't tabulated, because that's technically then not, you know, they might have attempted something, but it was caught and therefore not an actual fraudulent vote cast. It's pretty rare. And it's also pretty rare for them to be able to figure out who actually did it, because if it wasn't the voter on the envelope, it's hard to then go figure out well, was it a mistake by the part of someone in the house? Was it a new person that lived there? Did they mix up their envelopes? Usually it's voter error in some mm-hmm. way that was just a mistake, not a deliberate attempt. And then there's the issues that are deliberate. And we have actually an example of one that was in Colorado back in 2016 that was prosecuted north of Denver up in Weld County. And it was the former chair of the Republican Party of Colorado and he was a radio host uh, actually talking about voting fraud quite extensively during the October period of time in 2016. But he actually, uh, his ex, his, well, I think they were getting divorced at the time, but his ex-wife had moved out of the home and had not updated her address before ballots went out. And mm. her ballot went to their home. He took her ballot and attempted to return it, and they caught it. Ooh. 
And she called the, oh yes. And she called the office and said, I didn't get my ballot. And then they were able to see that someone had attempted to return it and they traced it back to him. And he got charged with a felony and um, a felony conviction in Colorado for attempting to do that. So we have those examples of where we are able to catch, we are able to hold accountable, and the system can do that. And that's kind of the beauty of it is that when there are issues, we can deter and detect. And New Jersey just caught something that someone was attempting to do. North Carolina caught the bad actors that were trying to hurt voters and take their ballots and dispose of them, which is not voter fraud, but election fraud. You know, so those are some of the examples that we've actually captured recently where the system actually caught issues that came up. And that's what we have to do. We always want to make sure we've got systems in place that can deter, detect, and hold accountable bad actors that are trying to interfere with the voting process, hurt voters, dispose of voters, validly cast ballots, or any other interference that might try to uh, hurt the election process. Yes, those those procedures are so important. You know, I've loved talking with you for the past hour. I can't believe we're already getting at the end here. But for my last question for you, what is the the main point that you want to leave our listeners with today about the security and validity of mail-in voting in the U.S.? Sure. Well, this, this voting method has been tried and true and tested uh, over a long period of time. And what's great, and really what the opportunity I see, is that uh, with states that have kind of come before the rest of the country, so states that have perfected this over a period of time over the past, you know, now more than 20 years, there's real opportunity for states that are coming, that are newer to this, to just replicate the best practices, the systems, ballot tracking, all these opportunities that have been tried, been tested, been utilized, been, um, been improved in states that came before uh, to get ready for November. And, and that's really important. And I think the other thing is voters that are listening and that are interested in this, you should definitely have confidence in this process. It's, it's extensive. We've talked about some of it today. There's even more to the story than even what we've talked about. And I hope voters, uh, you know, understand that, number one, there are specific processes. If they want to learn about them, I encourage them to visit their local election office, get a tour. A ton of offices provide tours. Denver streams their ballot operations. They put information and videos out all the time Mm -hmm. with what this process looks like, and they share that. I would encourage you to be poll workers if you're interested in this process and and serving and learning more. Uh, Touring and then serving as an election judge is a great way to get more information about the voting process. And then then the final piece is, you know, voters should have an ability to vote in a safe and secure way. And we need Mm -hmm. to make sure that that's available to every single voter in the country for all primaries and the November election, certainly. And one of the biggest barriers, frankly, that voters face is when they show up to vote with the last option they have on Election Day at an assigned polling place, and there's a six-hour line. And we have Mm -hmm. seen that happen repeatedly in major cities, mostly major dense cities across the country this year. And we need to get past that. We need to diagnose and address that issue once and for all for what it is. And it's a lack of funding and poor planning and policy problems. Those are why we see those big giant lines that, frankly, are the biggest barrier 
that voters say. Yes. And we need to, we need to yeah. do a better job of delivering this process. And mail-in voting yeah. is one way that we can do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Amber. I really appreciate it. So today I've been speaking with, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Today I've been speaking with voting expert uh, Amber McReynolds, CEO for the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition and co-author of the new book, When Women Vote, and it includes a ton of great information. Please check out her site, voteathome.org. And also, please send feedback about this show. Do you want to hear more about this topic? Then let me know. Just send me an email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Until our next show... Ask those you do business with, who's in your government, <laughs> who uh, you, you communicate with when you vote, if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them, and be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.